Okay, so I think you're seeing a lot more activity in the markets recently. Right? There's a lot of movement. Um, generally, you're seeing a little bit of a rebound. So all that is well and good. I, I, I honestly don't know by the time this episode go out, is it still a situation? <laughs> Things are changing so quickly. But at the core, depending on what kind of investor you are, at the core, some investors personally like myself, Thomas, Max, the guys from Geek Out, a lot of us are very fundamental when we're trying to understand a business. And a lot of people, when they talk about business, when it comes to investing, they want to look at moats, right? They want to look at the strength of this company, how powerful it is in, you know, essentially being the dominant guy. But Thomas wrote a Twitter post and I thought was very interesting because instead of just focusing on the moats, he shares that we should focus on the direction of the moats. Is this moat growing or is it shrinking? Because essentially if it's shrinking, that's kind of losing over time, right? So then the question is, how do you observe a growing moat? And yeah, not surprisingly, I brought Thomas Chua back on the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good morning, everyone. I welcome you to another day with the Financial Coconut. In our podcast, Bilbanking Financial Myths, discovering best financial practices and discussing financial strategies that fits our unique life. You get it. Ultimately, empowering us to create a life we love while managing our finances well. So today, we are going to spend some time with Thomas, a regular on our show and on our other show, TFC Stock Geeker, to talk a little bit about observing a growing mode to quench all the hungry investors in our community. <laughs> and if you're very hungry, just go to the other podcast, okay? TFC Stocking specifically for all of you. But for everyone else, take it as a teaser to think a little bit about the businesses that you invest in or even the businesses within the index funds or the funds that you hold. So yeah, welcome back together with Thomas. Okay, Thomas, how's your portfolio? <laughs> My portfolio is dead, bro. <laughs> Everything is down. <laughs> is, that, is that a good way to open? <laughs> uh, probably not. Uh, probably not. But I don't okay, so, think there's anyone portfolio who's up right now. <laughs> fair point, fair point. Unless you short the market, right? Which is a yeah. discussion altogether. But yeah. yeah, tell us a little bit more. Why should we then listen to you? I mean, for our every listeners, right? They know you, mm. right, Thomas? Yeah, right? Yeah. Always on the show, sharing us very good stuff. But for first time, someone that just trickled into the SEO search through the title. Who are you? What do you do? Why should they listen to you about today's topic? Yeah, I've been investing for 14 years, right? So while the market has been extremely brutal this year... You started at 16, is it? 17, <laughs> 17. Uh, I'm quite old already, bro. I'm like 32 <laughs> this year. <laughs> okay. So I'm very sure the mass market will disagree with you. 32 is not very old. But anyway, please continue. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I've been investing for quite some time. Investing style gradually evolved from more deep value dividend investing to nowadays I try to look for quality companies that are able to grow for a long time. And when looking for these companies, right? 
one of the most important things is actually we are looking at whether they have an economic mode, meaning are they able to protect their position against competitors? Because after all, if I were to come up with a product today, let's say if I were to start a yogurt ice cream store, you know, what does it mean for me? What must happen in order for me to have a pricing power over other people? Because let's say if I would open a bubble tea and then, you know, like 10 years ago, there was this bubble tea craze, right? And then everybody just started opening and nobody really have a pricing power, right? Because one I store is similar to the next. Exactly, right? <laughs> it's only until recently then mm. bubble tea start to resurface again. And you see that it is those who have certain branding power who actually stays on and survive and are able to earn a decent profit, right? So without this economic mode, something that differentiates you from your competition, businesses will not have the right to profit and, you know, and they will earn mediocre returns if they don't have an economic mode and the benefit will all accrue to us consumers. So when you yeah. look at a lot of the products today... Which is not a bad thing, right? Which is not a bad thing. It is not a bad thing, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. recently have a thought about when something becomes low-tech, it is all about mm. feel good and price. Right. When a business or when a product comes to become a low-tech situation where everybody has easy access to be able to produce this thing, then it comes into the situation of feel good and pricing. That's it. Mm. Every other thing is not very important. Okay. But, but that's a different discussion for another day. But yeah, yeah as a consumer standpoint, you know, cheaper for consumer is great you know but mm. i think that's the that's where a little bit of the dissonance exists right as mm. an investor it's a different arrangement altogether right yeah so exactly so if you're an investor then you want your company to have some sort of a competitive advantage something that differentiates itself so like when we look at the difference between nike or decathlon i mean arguably both of them very high quality product but one is able to charge a much higher price than the other right because they do confer that branding but when you talk about mode, right, it is not just branding. There are several others, which are, if I walk through, one of my favorite would be switching costs. So when you look at a lot of the software, like your ERP software, like your SAP, for example, or even Oracle, ask any of the very, very old companies today, like our banks or even our government sector who's using SAP, you ask them to switch to a better interface, something that works better. They will tell you it's very, very, very difficult. Why? Because it's tough to switch. They have to uproot the entire database, you know, clean up the data, so on and so forth. Similarly for software like Adobe Photoshop, like if the designer spent years mastering their software, he's not going to switch over to another software anytime soon. So these are businesses with switching costs. They're able to trap their consumers inside. And then every year when they raise prices, right, their consumer will suck them and they will accept the price increases. <laughs> Right. Mm, 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 mm. Whereas like if you look at some software, if we are looking at companies like Zoom, very, very good product, but they don't really exactly have a switching cost. So today, if a similar product comes into market, which is just as easy to use, right? And there's no problems that like you can run a webinar with thousands of people, no hiccups, and they offer a lower pricing than Zoom, then the subscriber is just going to jump ship, right? So that is the difference in switching costs. Then... Another mode we usually see is economies of scale. So with scale, right, different companies will have different cost structure. So the typical standard one we see is like Decathlon or even our poster boy for economies of scale is Costco or even uh, Netflix. I, I thought you wanted to say Sing Xiong, but anyway, yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that is one too. That is one too. Mm -hmm. But maybe I elaborate on Netflix. So, I mean, it costs a lot of money to create a lot of this movie production or TV yes, series, right? But when you have a large pool of subscribers, then you're able to divide this production costs 
over a larger base of paying subscribers. So in a sense, Netflix actually have a cost advantage due to its scale, right? Yeah. It actually has a lower cost per subscribers in that case. Yeah, so the topic for today, we are going to talk about why it is more important to have a growing mode than a white one, right? And I thought it's an interesting one because we can't just have companies that have super wide mode. It is more important for us to look at the direction of the mode. So here's what I mean. If we were to choose companies solely based on the size of their competitive advantage, the size of their economic mode today, right? Then at one point in time, in the early 2000s, we probably would have choose Blockbuster over Netflix. We would have choose Yahoo over Google because they are way bigger with much more users. And also at one point, we would have chosen Nokia over Apple, right? Because they just have way more users. And at one point, Nokia phone seems indestructible. I know. Both from the hardware and also from the sales point of view, right? Was it 8250? Oh, oh yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. And I think what 3310. Yeah, I don't know, man. 3310 got a snake game. Oh my god. Those were the times. Okay, yes, yes, yes. But yeah, there was a period of time. Yeah. Yeah, so there was a there was a period of time like if we look at the size of the economic mode itself and we choose this company, we would be punished very, very severely, right? And this mistake isn't just made by us investors. So when you look at management of this company, they do make mistakes like this. So for example, the founders of Google, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, they actually offered to sell Yahoo, sell Google to Yahoo for $1 million, just $1 million. Today, I believe they are either close to 1 trillion or slightly above 1 trillion in market cap, right? But they turned it down in 1998. Similarly, Netflix offered to sell to Blockbuster for $50 million right, early on, but they also turned them down because they were confident, right? Today, I have so many users. I have a huge economic mode. Who are you to come and tell me that, you know, why do I need to buy you? I could very well just eliminate you. But if we look at the trend of the mode, you can see that the users of Yahoo is actually pretty stagnant, but Google, on the other hand, is scaling extremely fast. Similarly for blockbusters, their sales were also quite stagnant. Whereas on the other hand, Netflix is also scaling extremely fast and they were disrupting themselves. You know, Netflix used to start out as a DVD rental company and then subsequently they move on to streaming services. Yeah. So here's how to spot companies with a growing mode, right? We want to see that they are actually investing heavily in their own businesses. So this... In wait, wait, wait. Yeah, so I think we want to talk a little bit about the part of a growing mode, right? Because how do I then differentiate growth and growing mode? Because every business in the early days, they have an easy or relatively easy trajectory for growth. Right. And some are, I, I've, I've seen so many, so many people come to me and say, oh, this company is growing 20%. Say, okay, I get it. It's a growing company. So it doesn't mean it's a growth company. It doesn't mean a mode is coming and happening. Right. So how do I then deduce that, that this exists? I think that's a great question. So before we deduce that. I ask questions for a living, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when we are trying to deduce whether, you know, yes, they have growth today. But not all growth are created equal. So for example, if I try to visualize Zoom at scale, no matter what their sales number is, if there's a similar product that come out, I am going to switch. Whereas if I were to look at product like Unity, for example, which is another software that's designed for gamers to create mobile games or 3D designers, for example, Toyota is using them to model their vehicles, right? Before they actually start producing 
So here's the thing about these companies. They actually start to give a lot of this free software to small businesses with revenue below a certain threshold. They also give it free to students and then they try and get them accustomed to it. So the, here's the thing. I can visualize Unity as the sales starts to ramp up, more and more users come in, they will find it very difficult to switch over to another product, you know, as the company skill, because they are going to introduce new features and the game they are created is going to be locked within their ecosystem, right? If they want to switch a software, probably they need to reinvent the software, so on and so forth. Similarly, for companies like social media platform, for example, um, let's say ByteDance, TikTok, for example, the app maturity, I can visualize their mode to be network effect. Network effect meaning the more users come in, the stronger the ecosystem will be. So for social media platforms or e-commerce platforms, the mode is usually network effect, meaning like when more people enter into TikTok ecosystem, more content creators will come in to create content. And when more content creators come in, you know, advertisers will come in to supply the money. And that's where they make the platform better. And the flywheel starts to happen. You know, the number of users will increase, content creators will increase. So um, for these businesses, their growth makes a lot of sense because when they are growing, we can see clearly where the mode is forming. So whenever we look at company growth, right, it's important for us to be able to sieve out at maturity, which of this mm. economic mode that we discussed today is able to be applied to these companies. Mm-hmm. Okay, great, great. And to demystify this and not just stay at the level of like, I can visualize or I can feel, <laughs> there are certain core ideas, right? Which is what we are going to talk about today, right? So I've prepared three pointers for all of you to observe growing mode essentially and not just a growing business because yeah, to be fair, every business grows, but how do you know that this eventually becomes a mode, right? So Thomas, what is the first point for all of us? I think the first point is that we want to see that they are investing heavily into the business. And it's not just investing heavily, right? During the earnings call, when the management is communicating their strategy, you must be able to classify the company into one of the economic mode that this investment is going to bring into. So for example, let's say it is spending a lot on capex, capital expenditure. And when we look at companies like Amazon, for example, they are always spending extremely heavily into building their logistic power, right? Building a lot of warehouses, trying to automate everything. And when I try to visualize the kind of mode they are trying to build, it is very difficult for competition to actually come in to compete with them on their e-commerce platform. Why? Because usually when it comes to delivery, cost is a factor, speed is a factor. And years and decades of pouring into this form of investment, right? By the time competition realizes that this is important, it is a bit too late for them to close the gap. Similarly, for expenses such as research and development, right? Our TSMC or our ASML, both in the semicon industry, if you were to ask competition today or you were to ask the whole of China, can they replicate the success of these companies within the next five years? They'll tell you no, right? Because the amount of know-how that they have actually poured the money into, it is not just the machineries that's extremely difficult to copy. It is also the people who are trained to do all these services. It is very difficult to train from scratch. And so when management is communicating all these strategies, how they are spending into R&D, how they are spending into marketing and how they are spending into capital expenditure, it is important that we tie what management is saying into one of the economic mode and think whether these expenditures actually make sense or not. 
So that is for the first factor. We want to see that they are investing heavily into the businesses. Okay, so I think I want to double down on the point of investing into their business, right? So right. at what point should you consider that they are making good investments into their business? And at what point should you then consider that, oh, maybe it's time to invest into tangential parts of their business? Because, I mean, your example was Amazon, right? And hmm. Amazon, there are multiple, I mean, as much as people want to make it either sound overly simply simple or overly complicated, there are a few big verticals, right? Logistics, you know, essentially fulfillment. And of course, also the whole digital side of things, which end up becoming a club, right? So at what point do you know that they are investing well into the things that they are building? And at, at what point do you think that they should then start to invest in other things? Because a lot of these kind of companies that eventually becomes huge, they usually have to go through multiple phases of investments into different verticals that sometimes look like they are in a mess. Like Shopify in the early days of Square, they look like they're in a mess. It's like, ah, what you do here? Why you do there? And then, you know, analysts will come in and say, oh, they should focus. But if they focus, they will very readily have a competition that will warp them up. Right, so so how do you then evaluate that? Oh, okay, they they are doing well in terms of investing back into the business. I think for mature companies, right, we can usually look at their track record. Even though I say mature companies, but a lot of tech companies that are pretty mature today are still growing at twenty percent a year. So we will have to look at the track record of their investment. So if we look at Amazon. They are the poster boy for, you know, spending well into their R&D, spending well into their CAPEX in terms of growing the mode of the business. But then when we look at company like Google, for example, it is extremely strong. The search engine is still growing well. But when we look at its moonshot projects, none of them have really come to fruition, <laughs> right? Google is still known as a search engine. And then the second thing they are known for is YouTube, which was not developed by them. This was something mm. they bought over. And so when I look at the track record of Google, it is actually masked by their extremely profitable advertisement arm, which is basically just the search engine and YouTube. But when I look at... I want to push you a little bit on that point mm. because when I am in London, mm -hmm. Facebook, Instagram is still dishing me ads from KL. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, it's like a cafe. Where is this, right? It's, it's in KL. Mm. And now I'm in Paris. I'm still getting ads from London. Okay, from Facebook and, and Instagram, right? So essentially the meta group. But Google is extremely sharp with their ads, of course, because I use the Google Maps, mm -hmm. right? So they know where I am, right? I consume on YouTube. They, so is it all about monetization? Because what I'm hearing from you is monetization. Can they monetize, right? Is this still a business of search only, which is fair, that's where most of their money come from. Or is it just YouTube only? Or do they need to be able to monetize other verticals to suggest that it is a mode or do all these things that are quote-unquote not monetized yet or not really spitting out money but supporting the main business valuable in that sense like for investments is it then helping to build a mode? I think that is a great point. So I have a question for you. Are you using iPhone? Just curious. <laughs> I am, yes, I am. Yeah, which is why, which is why the, the search result for meta platforms is a bit screwed up. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to developing all these products, right, most of the successful Google product was developed in between 2008 to 2012. So that's where the era of your Google map, um, that is your Google drive. It's just a fun fact. All these interesting product 
is actually designed by the current CEO, Sundar Pichai, right? Mm. He is actually the one who drove the growth of Google Drive and stuff because he says like folders, all this is extremely outdated. There shouldn't be a case whereby, you know, people have to close a document, send a document and then, you know, and then collaborate that way. But if you look at the time after 2013 or 2014, for example, there hasn't been a lot of new innovation coming out from Google. You see Monday.com or you see Calendly making a living out of Google calendars. You know, Google could have very easily monetized into all those verticals. Or you see a product like Trello or this. It shows that Google hasn't exactly been doing a very good job at coming up with new products. And the era of them coming up with really good products seems to end at around 2013 or 2014. Since then, it has been like micro improvement to their existing product. And they spend a lot of money doing mergers and acquisitions. The only one that really turned out well was YouTube. Waymo, we are still, I mean, they always tout it as a great technology, but there hasn't been anything that's coming out of a hundred, like millions and millions of dollars. Any other things to say? <laughs> Ton and ton of money have been poured in, right? To so-called build the mode. But it seems like it is the existing product line that is has been developed pretty early on. I mean, they are great product, but it's just that over the years, they have still been pouring a lot of money into new projects. It's just that nothing significant has been coming up yet. Yeah. Okay, so I want to clarify that in your dictionary as an investor, all products are products unless they can be monetized in that sense, right? So whatever product created is just what it is and it shouldn't really be evaluated in an investor viewpoint unless it can be monetized. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Not exactly. So for example, when it comes to Google Chrome, right? It is not monetized, but it is a product that helped them save a lot of money. So for example, when we look at how much Google actually pay Apple, I think last year they are rumored to pay around $18 billion. And they have a contract with Mozilla Firefox to pay $5 billion a year just to remain the default search engine on Apple Safari and also on our Mozilla Firefox. So they come up with a product like Google Chrome, for example, which till today, I think more than 60% of all users use this product. It is a major cost-saving product. So I wouldn't classify that as a field project. But the thing is, even Google Chrome was developed back in 2014. But since then, nothing much has been coming up ever since Larry and Sergin actually stepped down. The track record in terms of their moonshot project just isn't so good. Unlike a company like Amazon, whereby they are churning something significant every now and then. It doesn't always have to require heavy investment. So like, for example, Amazon just turned on the advertisement tab just like that. And then suddenly it became a major operating profit contribution segment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the beef okay. with Google is it's not that they are weak or, you know, they shouldn't spend. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
But since latest, I give them maybe by 2014, the amount of innovative new product has started to cease. Not much new innovation that's coming up. Fair. That's why we've been saying that Fang is a value play at this point in time, right? Is, is that, <laughs> shouldn't look at it grow, but that's a different discussion. Okay, so closing point number one, right? That to observe a growing mode, they must be investing heavily in their business. What is the measurement of heavy then? How do I know that they are investing sufficient back into their business? Yeah, so it, it depends on what the mode of the company is, right? So if I'm looking at a company like Oracle, for example, or even our SAP, then I will pay very close attention to their research development and also their marketing expenses just to make sure they are spending to develop better products. And so the metric I usually like to look at a few things. One is R&D as a percentage of their revenue. You want to see that that figure is actually either constant or in line with what their competition is spending. Because a lot of times, I'm going a bit into the second point, but a lot of times in order to please Wall Street, right? The easiest expense to cut is to cut back on R&D or your marketing expense. Then immediately your net profit will start to show up extremely nicely. But the thing about yeah. cutting these expenses, right, is that you're actually mortgaging your future away. Now, the mm. second thing I want to look at is like, for example, if the mode is network effect, for example, your e-commerce platform or your social media platform, then over time, as they are investing more and more into building the infrastructure, I want to see that the amount of users are actually rising. You know, that's a great indication that there is this flywheel effect that's actually taking place. Or in the case of a luxury product, like Lululemon, for example, then I want to see their gross margin actually increasing. Bro, hot pants is luxury now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, you look at across don't all the... Or don't cancel. <laughs> <laughs> you, you look across the athletic mm-hmm. leisure where right, their gross margin athletic is the highest. It's true. So it's true. if it's branding, then by default, when it comes to branding, we want to see their gross margin, meaning how much they are able to charge a surplus over the cost of making these products, right? To grow over time. You know, then this converts branding power. If okay, it okay. is actually a company that's economies of scale, we want to see that they have actually have bigger bargaining power over their suppliers, or you see that their cost structure is improving over time. Because after all, you are going to battle based on size and size will give you a better cost structure. So you want to make sure the cost structure over time starts to look nicer and nicer. So that's really what will keep competition out. Nice, nice. Okay, and we have point number two. What is point number two? I want to see that they are not mortgaging away their mode by caving into short-term demands of Wall Street and you know, trying to get the stock price to be pumped up. So the, the thing about this is sometimes it's not just about caving into the pressure of Wall Street, right? So if we were to look at some of the proxy statement, which actually shows how managements get rewarded, their salary, their bonuses, their millions of dollars, right? Some of them are rewarded on very, very, very short-term looking metrics, meaning like stuff like your earnings per share. And these figures can actually be manipulated, right? So a lot of these companies that are chasing this compensation, right? They are, how they are compensated would actually cut back on certain important expenses or they would destroy the brand to meet these numbers. So for example, I mean, in the past, brands like Victoria's Secret, brands like your coach New York were regarded as very high-end, very exclusive, right? And they were able to charge a big fat margin for their product. But, you know, just because they wanted to chase the revenue growth because they were rewarded that way, they started to discount their products. 
And you know, the, this is a huge mistake for any high-end brand because once you discount your product, you actually destroy the exclusivity, right? And you destroy that atasness for Singaporeans listeners. Yes. Right. So once it is lost, it is quite impossible to regain um, this high-end branding. So similarly, companies that actually reduce on their R&D, so on and so forth, um, just to make all these short-term goals, I call them mortgaging away their mode. And so when I'm looking at evaluating the direction of a company mode, I want to make sure that the, the company management they are actually not doing these actions, re- taking away expenses that are necessary to protect the moat in order to meet all these short-term goals. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair point. But what about, I mean, you brought up fashion, right? And if you've been investing for a while, there are quite a few fashion catastrophe over <laughs> over the past decade. A lot of fashion companies do mess up. And one thing that came to mind was Under Armour, right? So Under Armour was doing amazing. And then they had all these, I think 20 quarters of like busting through expectations. And there was this one quarter where they were just overly stocked up and they end up having so much stock sitting around, they have cash flow issues, right? And so how will you then rate something like that? Because they have never come back ever after that. But the idea here is based on what you were talking about, like not discounting, these guys have a lot of stock around, right? And if they don't run through the discount process, they will have logistical headaches and they will have a lot of unfashionable (laughs) athleisure things that they cannot sell at the same price next season, right? So how would you then evaluate a case like this? I thought it's an interesting point um, you brought up Under Armour. Under Armour, there was a little bit of accounting fraud involved as well. Largely because management was promising Wall Street like 20% growth quarter after quarter. And so when they couldn't meet it, that's where they try and you know play around with the numbers and in the end it resulted inventory swelling up there was another company in our asia region 361 degrees right oh. toy to tai to right mm-hmm. 360 degrees i think they sponsored the 08 china olympics i think they were the main one yes. yeah mm. yeah so similarly both of them were doing this at the same time just that mm. 361 degree exploded i think in 2015 and under armor 2017 so what happened and under armor did something that was similar also was that 361 degree in order to chase that very high revenue growth number they started producing a lot of inventory and they shove all this inventory down into the third-party merchant. So like you see your mom and pop store or, you know, their version of Food Locker, right? They start to shove a lot of inventory into this mom and pop. And when we look at the amount of account receivables, which means that whenever 361 degree, they push this product line down to all these third-party retailers, they tell them, oh, you can't sell. Don't worry. I'm not going to collect payment from you now. I will collect it from you after you sell this inventory. As long as you just keep taking all these shoes, all these shirts from me. So the sales number was coming in beautiful, right? They were growing at extremely high rate. But here's the thing. They were not getting their cash, right? Similar to Under Armour, they were running into cash flow problem. And when I look at the account receivable aging analysis of this company, so when I look at Nike, for example, their account receivables as a percentage of their sales is 10%. And then when we look at 361 degrees, in 2014, it was 50%. And by the time it hit 2015, it is 100%. Meaning 100% of their sales were not done in cash. They just tell people, you don't have to pay me. <laughs> you just take the product. I don't want to show a very, very swollen inventory. So you just take it. And what happened to all these third-party retailers is that they began heavily discounting 361 degree product. 
And just like over a course of few months, they just destroyed the brand like this. And you never saw the share price recovering back to what it was in 2014 anymore. So, I mean, this is what happened. Similarly, Under Armour, you know, at one point, they were the rising star, you know, coming to yeah. match Nike, so on and so forth. But because they were mortgaging their mode away just to chase all these short-term goals. And, you know, it's tough for these companies to actually make a comeback. Mm, yeah, we should look at Anta. Big fan of Anta. <laughs> just saying. Yeah. Right. When I was living in China, I was like, Anta. Oh my god! It's like everybody know Nike. It does very expensive. You go in, right? It's gonna cost a bomb. But you go to the shop next door called Anta, right? And it's like the things looks the same. Quality is pretty much similar, and it's one third of the price, right? So mm. it's a local Chinese brand. Yeah. And then next time down the road, okay, cool. Yeah. So and this is for building brands. Mm -hmm. And in this point number two of not mortgaging the mode away by pursuing short term goals, are there other sectors that we can look at or other modes that very common that you want to also point out? I think the other one that comes to my mind is borders, right? Because for the longest time, they refuse to go online. Um, and the thing hey, about going- was very fun, okay? And we locked, right? We got <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, oh I always God. go there and we browse. Just, <laughs> yeah, we are totally like revealing our which era we come from. But yes, yes. Shout out to all of you millennials. Oh, we're not Borders. Ooh, okay, yes, continue. <laughs> and so when we look at companies like Borders, which have closed down, right? The thing about running an online bookstore is that, let's say the traditional bookstore, the, a huge one like Borders can carry maybe 20,000 titles. Amazon could carry infinity titles, right? Yeah. And so the value proposition was just drastically different. And the management just was extremely resistant to invest. Similarly to many, many of the retailers back then, management, they were comfy, right? Because they were showing net profit, very, very nice net profit. And they were compensated based on the amount of net profit that comes in. If they were to start investing heavily today, into e-commerce, right? The net profit will be depressed. They are not going to get their bonuses. And so in a way, they used to have a very strong brand and they just mortgage that brand away just because they refuse to invest. Similar for Blockbuster, similar for Kodak even, right? Okay, even when the big okay. trend was coming, because they were showing great cash flow at the time, mm. they don't want to give that up. And in a way, they just mortgage it away. Interesting. So then how would you rate Disney? I think Disney is one of the recent ones that actually bit the bullet, right? And had yeah. horrible cash flow. and doesn't help <laughs> with the pandemic. And actually invest big into a new growth trend. But it's not the first time Disney did that. They, they've done, they have a, quite a good track record of doing something like that. But how would you then rate them in their recent move? I think them going onto Disney Plus is a very good move, right? Because they will be able to unlock all the value of their content, which was created in the past. And as we know, no, Disney content have a very, very long shelf life. I know. You can recycle and recycle and recycle and recycle. Bro, even the Mickey Mouse whistling is in my head. In a way, it is like oil rig that never dries up. You know, there will always be this gold oil over there. So I think that is a good move. But what I don't like is management is slightly short-sighted. So before Bob Iger stepped down, right, he was very willing to invest extremely heavily into buying a lot of this great content. And then his eventual goal is to push them onto Disney+. Plus. But when we look at what Disney is doing nowadays is that all these new movies that are coming up, they will not release it on Disney Plus first. They want to let it run in cinema first. But can you imagine the power if they let all these new movies, be it Black Widow or whatever your Marvel movie that's coming up, once you come up, you show it to the, your Disney Plus members. It is going to help increase the number of users 
um, for Disney Plus or rather the whole of Disney extremely quickly. And then this will slowly help bring down the cost of producing content per subscriber because when it comes to subscription businesses, they tend to be quite sticky. And I thought the management is a bit short-sighted that they still want to eat the cinema segment first, mm. right? They, they were delayed for about one month. But the thing is, when you are able to distribute all this great content to a larger scale, you not only attract more people onto Disney+, Plus, but you also get more data at the same time. I can you imagine if like your household is always playing Frozen, for example. And nowadays, if you are using Roku, right, you can actually purchase your Frozen product. Uh, not, not your Frozen product. Like, what's that mm-hmm. name? Elsa, okay. Elsa. The door of Elsa. Anna, you know, whatever. Yes, yes. You know, they are going to start showing you things that your children cannot resist. And then they are mm. just going to tell, you know, the parents to come here, click the buy immediately. Then it's going to be a very seamless e-commerce transaction. Mm. You know, they are able to offer way more targeted advertisement that way. The amount of data they will be able to collect when they have a much larger database, mm. it's immense. And that's where they are able to monetize extremely well because it is not just enough to have a large traffic, right? In order to monetize, you must have a lot of products. And Disney do have a lot of products. They have the cruise line, they have Disney Park, they have so many toys to choose from. And it seems mm-hmm. to be a waste that the new CEO, Bob Chapek, is actually putting, drawing the line just there. You know, like Disney Plus, if you want to watch, you pay $30 more in order to watch immediately. If not, you wait month, month. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that is going to slow down the growth of Disney Plus subscribers. So I thought that is a bit short-sighted. But otherwise, I think Bob Iger did a great job in the past in terms of trying to grow Disney's more. Mm, but I would rate him C for handing over. Horrible handover. <laughs> Horrible. Exactly. For all of you that, you know, new to Disney, but I guess say he want to step down five years already I think <laughs> it's like yeah. oh, I want to step down oh don't lie maybe I stay around for a little longer I want to step down oh no I stay around it's like bro make up your mind right if, <laughs> if you cannot hand over the management you know will struggle once they take over but yeah that's a different discussion for another day but we're talking us- about handover right the even yeah. more horrible one is Starbucks yeah. he's coming back for the time already <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's horrible, those guys, right? They cannot pass it down. The reality is once you hand down to the next bunch of management, they do have their ideas. They do have a different view of things. And sometimes it takes a bit of a tangent and sometimes it takes a few... half a decade of bad run before it turns around, you know, like Microsoft, <clears throat> they change the CEO again, blah, blah, blah. But that's, a, that's another discussion. We should do one for, for management in the future. Yeah, so this brings us to the third point of observing a growing mode. And that would be? I think you want to see that they are benefiting all stakeholders in the ecosystem, right? Because to be honest, for a mode to be truly robust, you don't want it to be reliant on just like you have high switching costs, for example. You want to make sure that people within your stakeholders, meaning like your suppliers, your customers, your regulators, so on and so forth, they are actually getting value from your presence. And the best example is usually Costco, right? Because by generating high sales volume, their suppliers is actually able to earn a a decent profit just from the high turnover. Then likewise, when you're passing all these cost savings to your customers, they are happy as well. And all your mayors and all that whatnot, they are more than happy to welcome a Costco into their town right? Because it keeps their people happy. It is a tool to fight inflation, right? Having Costco in your town. I will challenge that by any way. Yes, please continue. (laughs) (laughs) We're not talking about that today. (laughs) Yeah, So this is one example whereby you are building a mode that's extremely resilient. As as opposed, like, let's say you take a look at our Philip Morris, for example, Mm. extremely strong mode, addictive product, right? Strong mindshare. But 
every now and then you are going to see a lot of people trying to take it down. The government will hate you. Even the people, a lot of people are spreading the message that smoking is bad, so and so forth. So usually I will not invest in companies that they are doing sin products. So for example, your cigarettes or your gambling or alcohol, because I'm afraid that even though they may seem to have a mode today because of their addictive nature, if a stakeholder is severely disadvantaged in this entire ecosystem, they might have what it takes to actually bring you down, no matter how good your mode actually seems today. Mm. On that ground, I want to push you a little bit on this idea of sin, right? So sin essentially is a moral idea, right? So and right. it is, uh, I would argue that it changes over time. Okay, so what is seen as moral, what's seen as immoral changes over time. And these days, things that are dirty, are getting immoral. They are becoming mm. a sin. So like things that are not green is a sin, right? I mean, not in the spiritual sense, but in a societal accepted parameter, it is becoming a sin. So does that mean that there will be no space for mining oil, all these kind of guys in your portfolio as, as this idea becomes more center stage that these are not good for society, not good for environment, and they quote unquote become a sin? I wouldn't classify all the mining companies as under sin companies. To be honest, for me, there's only three companies, three categories, right? Just your alcohol, your cigarettes, and what's the last one? And your casinos. Gambling. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, society can do with these three. But when it comes to the rest, for example, the, the great ones you mentioned, like the mining, the oil, so on and so forth, they are a bit debatable right? It's, mm. it's half-half. But I don't invest in them for a different reason. Why? Because it's I, cyclical. I know. So there's a, there's a, there's a different <laughs> set of different yeah, yeah. issues so, altogether. Yes. Yeah. So things mm. that are clearly bad from a society, I mean, alcohol, people will debate, but to me, I can live without it, right? So it, mm. it usually causes a bit more harm than good, right? You don't need alcohol to do business. I mean, if there's no alcohol, business will still carry mm. on. Mm. And, and so I, I generally try to avoid these three sectors specifically. But when it comes to the rest, you're right, there's a lot of judgment call involved. And to be fair, it's not really that black or white. There's benefits, there's disadvantages. But I don't invest them solely for a different reason, just because they are cyclical in nature, um, revenue not extremely recurring, and they are usually price takers. Meaning like the Shell Station and your Exxon Mobil, they are not going to have very different pricing, right? Because like consumers will just go to whichever one is cheaper. So I generally mm. don't really like companies like that. Fair point. But I think just to clear up, there's a difference between observing a mode and investing along the lines of your morals, right? Mm. So depending on what, what you believe in, it is what you believe in. I think what Thomas is trying to say is if some of these things are very emotionally driven, you know, for some people, it can affect the kind of incentive structures that are at play, you know, in the mode, right? And then there are people that actively want to topple you, lah, mm. right? And not probably not great. Lah. Cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing with us uh, three points. Any other last things that you want to add for us in closing to just kind of yeah wrap it up on like mode you know in general like how do you observe yeah. a growing mode I thought like maybe I'll just slot in a fourth point which I just thought of this morning is that I want to see a lot of corpses around this company meaning let's say this company I determine it to have a growing mode but sometimes it could be just there's no competition coming in so the mode actually hasn't been tested and so Dropbox yeah. In the early days. So for a long time, Dropbox, mm. there wasn't competition, right? Until like yeah. Microsoft came out with OneDrive, then Google Drive came out. Yeah, what well, they they tell everybody. Yeah. <laughs> All the big boys come in, yes. Yeah, so initially people thought like, oh wow, growing very nicely. You know, they have a mode branding, you know, uh, economies of scale, right? As they grow. 
But once that mode was tested, we actually saw that there wasn't much of a mode. <laughs> yeah, so when evaluating a company with a growing mode, we want to see dead companies surrounding, like, you know, it's leaving a trail of dead companies behind as it actually mm. grows. Like people are not able to compete. Competition is pulling out. Yeah. So that is just like one more point I wanted to add in. Great, great. Yeah, and Vivid, investor of Dropbox in the past. <laughs> so <laughs> I will tell you more next time, right? So thank you, Thomas. Thanks for coming on the show together with me. And yeah, I hope you guys like this new format. And if you like this new format, we will continue this new format. So yeah, meanwhile, take care, stay healthy. Bye, guys. Bye, Thomas. Bye. Thanks for having me. Hey, I hope you learned something useful today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconut. Knowledge is that much more part of interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, sign up for our socials, sign up for our newsletter, everything. Okay, but if there was one thing that I really want you to do, please share this on your socials and help us grow the network. I know I've been saying a lot, but yeah, you sharing on your socials, you're just one touch away from helping the network grow further so that we can create more content to meet your quench and thirst for financial content, at least quality ones. First, that comes from us. <laughs> so yes, share on your socials and I'll see you next week. Okay, so this week, last week was a facilitated monologue, the one with Adrian. Today also facilitated. Actually, next week, there are many other things that I wanted to talk about, but I did one episode with Chris from Honey Money and I thought it was great. It was a very, very good one and I want to slot it in. So next week, you will be hearing another facilitator monologue. Don't worry, I'm not becoming a lazy boy that just get other people come and talk. Okay? <laughs> I will share more on my own soon. But yes, next week, we will have Chris from Honey Money and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Lean Fire. As you know, recently he got flamed uh, for the whole fire discussion that he did with CNA and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I got him on to talk a little bit, have a good laugh. At the same time, expect on this idea of lean fire because I think in the fire movement at this point in time there has been a lot of divergence whereas different people are starting to become more nuanced with trying to understand fire and so actually probably the easiest one to achieve is lean fire and what does that mean right what does that mean to be lean and fire that's what we're going to talk about next week and also to share with you some core ideas and recap some of the core understandings um, in the fire movement so to empower you to achieve uh, your financial independence retire early. We'll see you next week.